0: please open your Bibles, if you haven't already, to John chapter 19. And if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide, you'll find the verses we'll be looking at today on page 589. John chapter 19, and we'll be in verses 25 through 30 this morning. Before I preach this sermon, we should pray together. Will you pray with me? Our Father in heaven... We thank you for more time to study your word together through the preaching of your word. That we would learn more of who you are and what you have done through your son Jesus Christ. And more time to grow in our understanding of what you Require from us what you want from us because we love you and we want to please you. So please come now and fill me with your Holy Spirit that I could speak well and fill all of us with your Holy Spirit that we could understand well. God, would you ignite our hearts and instruct our minds and Invite our wills to follow you. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So here is the scene in chapter 19. Jesus has been betrayed by one of his closest friends. He has been handed over to Jewish leaders. Who in turn have handed him over to their Roman governor whose name is Pontius Pilate. And they have brought before him charges of sedition and blasphemy. He has been found innocent by Rome. He has been found innocent by Rome. And yet he has been condemned to death because of political fear. And so... Jesus has now been scourged, which means severely beaten, probably within an inch of his life. He has been mocked. He's had a crown of thorns put onto and into his head. He's been spit on. And he's been led outside of the city to... A place of rejection, a place of execution. And there he has been stripped naked and now nailed through his hands and his feet to a cross where he is expected to and hoped to die slowly. And in our verses today, Jesus will take his last breath. But his death is unlike any death in human history. And his death stands alone as the most important death in human history. That which I have preached, I now seal with my blood. Those were the dying words of Pastor John Rogers, spoken on February 4th, 1555, before he was burned at the stake. The first to die as a martyr Under the vicious persecution of Queen Mary. And he was burned at the stake before his wife and his eleven children, including a baby he never met, but only saw on the way to his burning stake. And his last words were that which I have preached. I will now seal with my blood. And he said that after being given the opportunity by the sheriff to recant and deny everything that he had preached about Jesus Christ. Roland Taylor, a second martyr, a pastor from Hadley, England, he was burned at the stake just six days later and a few days before his execution he was permitted to have dinner with his wife and his son Thomas. And then at the end of their dinner he gave them a book and later was found written these words to his family in this book. Dying words I say to my wife and to my children. The Lord gave you unto me. And the Lord hath taken me from you. And you from me. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I believe that they are blessed. Which die in the Lord. God careth for sparrows. And for the hairs of our heads. I have ever found him more faithful. And favorable than is any father. Or husband. Trust ye therefore in him. By the means of our dear Savior Christ's merits. Believe, love, fear, and obey Him. Pray to Him, for He hath promised to help. Count me not dead, for I shall certainly live and never die. I go before, and you shall follow after to our long home. So today... I hope to draw our attention to what John is drawing our attention to, the dying words of Jesus. And what we have here in John chapter 19 is John's selection from Jesus' final words. And I say selection because these aren't all the words that Jesus said at his death. We could read the other gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and we put them together and find out that there were seven sayings that Jesus made on the cross. We find three of them in Luke and only in Luke. We find three of them in John and only in John. And we find one of them in both Matthew and Mark. So here are all seven of those sayings in chronological order here's the order in which he said them on the cross number one from luke 22 34 father forgive them for they know not what they do number two from luke 23 43 truly i say to you today you will be with me in paradise Third, from John 19.26. Woman, behold your son. And behold your mother. Fourth, from Matthew 27.46. And Mark 15.34. My God. My God. Why have you forsaken me? Fifth, from John 19.28. I thirst. Sixth. From John 19.30. It is finished. And then his seventh and final saying. Recorded by Luke. In chapter 23.46. Father. Into your hands. I commit my spirit. So in John. We have. Chronologically speaking. The third. The fifth. And the sixth. Sayings of Jesus. From the cross. So. That will be our focus today, and we will go wherever those sayings take us. So, the first saying, the first dying word of Jesus that John records, let's put it in context, we find in verses 25 through 27. John 19, 25 through 27, here is the first saying. Soldiers at the cross this week were introduced to four women at the foot of the cross. Some have read here that there were three women. Most have read here that there were four women. And I agree. There's four women here. Four laughing soldiers and four weeping women. That's the crowd that's gathered at the foot of the cross that John draws our attention to. As well. The beloved disciple. The beloved disciple is here. And that is John. The author of this book. He's most likely a teenager at this point. A very young man. Which incidentally. Explains why the soldiers allowed him. To. As well as the women to be so close to the cross. They weren't seen as a threat. So four weeping women. And John. The beloved disciple. And Jesus said to Mary his mother. Woman. Behold your son. And then he said to John the beloved disciple. Behold your mother. So no wonder John records this. And the others don't. I'm sure this was a life-changing moment for John. And so I want, if you don't already feel this or see this, I want you to feel what a tender scene this is at the foot of the cross. John wants us to see that. I mean, here stands a woman. Here stands a woman who, other than Jesus, is suffering more than anyone else on the planet. But moms, isn't that true? I mean, other than Jesus... Here is standing a woman who is suffering more than anyone else on the planet. She's watching her son be tortured and killed. Mary can remember holding Jesus as a baby. And cradling him in her arms and protecting him snuggling him and whispering things to him and now he's hanging before her naked bloody gasping for breath and she stands there i'm sure remembering words that a prophet Told her when Jesus was just a little boy. We read in the Gospel of Luke when Jesus was just a little boy and they had him at the temple, there was a prophet named Simeon. And Simeon came and said something to Mary. Here's what he said it's in Luke chapter 2. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your soul also. He was referring to this very scene that we're reading about today. And as Mary stands there, helplessly watching her son tortured and killed, it feels like a sword is going right through her soul. And Jesus, in the middle of deep, deep suffering, is making sure his mom's going to be okay. How tender is this? So what he does is he entrusts his mom to John. That's what's happening. Woman, behold your son. John, behold your mother. He's saying, take care of her, John. Take care of her. Jesus up until this point was probably responsible for his mom. Taking care of his mom. She had been a widow at least for a number of years. Joseph had died years before. Seems clear. I'm sure out of all of his brothers, Jesus was the most responsible. (laughs) Try being his brother. No wonder they didn't believe in him yet. Just think you're so perfect. Perfect. He was. So Jesus is passing on the responsibility here. He knows what's about to happen. He knows he's not going to be able to take care of his mom anymore. And so Jesus makes a great choice. And he chooses John. John, you need to take care of my mom. You need to take her as your own mother now now some people have asked well why didn't this get passed along to his brothers Jesus has at least a couple of brothers why why aren't they taking this responsibility why isn't Jesus charging them with this responsibility well one answer is they're not here it seems to be that they're not even in Jerusalem they're probably back home so they're not there John is there But even better, the reason this is a good choice, listen to this, to choose John to care for his mother is this, better to entrust his mom to a belief relative than a blood relative. Those of you who are Christians have a a blood family and you have a belief family. And I hope you love them all. For some of you, the icing on the cake is that your blood family is your belief family and your belief family is your blood family. It's great. For others of you, that's not the case. But some of you have been comforted by this over the years. That you have a Heavenly Father. Who is much better than your earthly father. And you have an older brother. Who died for you. And you have new brothers and sisters. And aunts and uncles and grandparents and kids. Within the family of God. So he entrusts his mom to John. Just a quick side note here. As I was thinking about this. Tradition tells us that in God's good providence, Mary did not lose this son. A terrible thing for Mary to, for a mom to outlive her son. How painful. That's what happened with Jesus. But I, I think by God's grace and by God's mercy. In his providence, Mary did not lose this son. You know that John, out of all of the disciples, was the only one who did not die a martyr, but lived to an old age. And maybe that was a mercy to this mom who would just been run through the soul with a sword. You won't feel that again. She didn't lose that son. George Hutchison said in his commentary, Christ is so tender as he will not fail to have a care of them who are little-minding their own condition and trials, but are chiefly taken up with what concerns him. For while his mother stands by his cross, afflicted and affected with his sufferings, he is finding out a way how she may be provided and cared for. Now before we move on to the next saying, I think it's also important to say what is not happening here between Jesus and Mary and John. There is a large religious organization, one to watch out for, that sees these words of Jesus very differently than what I just said. Rather than reading these words as Mary being entrusted to, Jesus, to John... They would say that this is John being entrusted to Mary. And that in John the whole church here. And all Christians are being entrusted to Mary. They teach that it is not Mary who needs John here. But rather it is John. And in John all Christians who need Mary here. Roman Catholics have a wrong and heretical view of Mary. They believe that Mary is our mediator, that she is an advocate, that she is an intercessor in heaven for us. Let me just read to you two of their most used prayers. And I quote, kind of can't believe I'm sort of reading these in a sermon, but it feels strange. So, don't like edit the recording here. A Hail Mary. You've heard the Hail Mary prayer. Now listen to this. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Now friends, Mary can't pray for you. Hail Holy Queen is another prayer. Hail Holy Queen, Mother of Mercy, our life, our sweetness, and our hope. Now just that should, if you've got a good understanding of the word, should sound offensive to you. It sounds very offensive to Mary. To thee do we cry, poor banished children of Eve. To thee do we send up our sighs, mourning and weeping in the valley of tears. Turn then, this is to Mary, most gracious advocate. Thine eyes of mercy toward us, and after this our exile, show unto us the blessed fruit of thy womb, Jesus, O clement, O loving, O sweet Virgin Mary. Amen. But listen Christ alone is our advocate in heaven. So that's wrong. And Mary would not like that. Mary was needy at the cross that Jesus knew this and this is just how tender that scene is while she is thinking of him he is thinking of her while she's thinking of him he is thinking of her such a good son even to the death remembering the command of God in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5 children honor your mother and father. Here is Jesus honoring his mother at his death. We find the next saying. The next saying of Jesus in verse 28 and 29. So let's move on and read those. After this, Jesus knowing that all was now finished. What is finished is what he says is finished in verse 30. Same word here. And we'll see what it is when we get there. Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. So there's the second dying word that John records. I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. These words of Jesus, I think, were said to the soldiers. They would be the only ones authorized to give Jesus anything. Now, if someone were carefully reading their Bible... If someone were reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And you were reading this passion narrative. You were reading about the beating of Jesus. And then the taking of Jesus to the cross. And now Jesus and the cross. You would see something that would make what we just read strange. Because what you would read is that Matthew and Mark both tell us that. Jesus on the way to the cross was offered wine and he refused it. So that gives us a question. Why did Jesus deny the wine before but request it now? So I think the answer to that question is found if, if we understand what that First drink that was offered to Jesus on the way to the cross actually was. Well, this is what it was. Apparently, in this day, it was common to have a group of compassionate onlookers who would offer wine mixed with a sedative to the condemned on their way to the cross. It was a showing of mercy. Sympathy and compassion. So in Matthew and Mark, that is what is happening. We're told by them that this is wine mixed with myrrh or wine mixed with gall. So it's supposed to be a sedative to help him endure what he's about to endure. So just keep asking the question. So why does Jesus refuse that? And the answer is, He doesn't want to be sedated. He doesn't want to have his mind clouded. He doesn't want to be medicated. He doesn't want to be numbed. He wants to be clear headed and drink the entire cup of God's wrath. And so on the way to the cross, he says, no, thank you. He wants to remain in control. But now here. Jesus says, I thirst. And he drinks. I suspect that based on what Jesus has gone through, if if he doesn't drink something now, he's going to die. And he's going to die prematurely. He's going to die before he wants to. His life taken and not given. Because we see down in verse 30, which is unique about the death of Jesus, that his life, even at the very end, is not taken His life is given. Verse 30. And he bowed his head. And gave up his spirit. So what Jesus does here. When he says I thirst. And he takes this drink. Is he actually slows his death down. He's slowing his death down. So that he can die On his terms, and of course, his terms are God's terms. So he's actually slowing down his death so that he can soon give up his spirit to God. And that's the seventh saying Luke tells us. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands. I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Again, we see that Jesus is in control. Complete and total control. Before we leave these two verses, there's just one more indicator of this control that Jesus has. You probably saw it, that John includes here. Jesus said, I thirst, obviously because he was Thirsty, he needed drink. But he also said, I thirst. John tells us, look. John tells us, he also said that to fulfill the scripture. Maybe Psalm twenty-two fifteen, which says, My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Or maybe Psalm 69, 21. They gave me poison for food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. So at the end of his life, John says, Jesus says, I thirst, goes without saying, because he needs drink. But John also tells us at the end of his life, Jesus says, I thirst. And a reason he says that is to fulfill Scripture. Now think about that. How in control is is Jesus at the end of his life? This means that Jesus is so saturated with the Bible that he knows and is thinking about every text of the Old Testament that points to him. And is careful at the very end to make clear to everyone that he is the fulfillment of all of it. That's crazy. He is in control. Right up until he gives up his spirit. All right, so that brings us to the final saying of Jesus, selected and recorded by John in verse 30. And I think that He also requested drink in part so that He could have the strength to shout the following. Verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, He said, and I don't know how you've heard this said, but I got a very clear understanding this week of The tone with which Jesus said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is one Greek word in the text. Tetelestai. It's one Greek word. And Jesus says, I think not mainly to those at the foot of the cross, Not mainly to his mom, not mainly to the soldiers, but to God. He says, it is finished. Charles Spurgeon, when he preached on this text, he jokes that we are fascinated by this simply because we never finish anything. At least not perfectly. I mean, when was the last time you finished anything perfectly? If you're like me, you have a thousand things undone. And even when you finish them, you don't finish them the way you wish you finished them. It is finished. What's the tone here? Here's what Arthur Pink said. He clarified that this final word is not a last gasp of a worn out life. That's how I've heard it. More often than not. This is not a cry of anguish. In fact, this comes right after and is in sharp contrast with what Matthew and Mark tell us Jesus said Right before this. And that is when Jesus was at the absolute height of his suffering. Having taken on the sin of the world. Enduring the wrath of God. And even in that moment being forsaken by God. And being turned away from by God. And Jesus cries out. You remember at the height of his anguish. My God. My God. Why have you forsaken me? Well, these words, it is finished, is a contrast to those words. You have words of deepest anguish followed by words of highest victory. So this is a loud, conquering cry. It is finished. So, what's finished? What is the it that's finished here? What's he talking about? Historically, there have been many suggestions as to what the it of it is finished is. It is the suffering of Jesus, it is the fulfilling of all the prophecy, it is the obeying of the law. It is the accomplishment of salvation. And I would want to color in the bubble underneath all those that says all the above. I would agree with C.S. Lewis Johnson. He said, the absence of a definite subject forces the reader to call up all of the aspects of our Lord's work that is now brought to an end. So let me do this. Without leaving this book of John, without leaving this book, think about what has been finished by Jesus. In John 4.34, maybe you write these down and look these up later. I'm going to go through them quick. What according to this book is Jesus now saying is finished? In John 4.34, Jesus said... My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And then in his prayer in John 17, 4, at the very end of his ministry, Jesus looking back said, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So when he says it is finished, that work is finished. But what is that work? What is the will of God that he had been sent to do? What did Jesus say to Pilate in 1837? For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. So we'd have to say when he says it is finished that he is finished bearing witness of the truth. His spirit will come and do it but he's done bearing witness of the truth. He's done Preaching, that's what that means. Jesus is done preaching. His preaching is finished. Well, what is the truth that he bared witness to? The truth is that Jesus, according to John the Baptist's words in John 1.29, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And again in verse 36, behold the lamb of God. So then when Jesus says on the cross, it is finished, it must also mean the lamb of God has taken away the sin of the world that has been finished. John 3:17 For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. It is finished. The way of salvation is finished. The road is paved, the bridge is built. The price is paid. God's people have been saved. It is finished. Now, Some of you might have a question at that point. And it's a really good question. Especially if you are new to Christ... Or if you are new to Christianity, you might be with me so far. You might be hearing this and hearing what we're saying that Jesus said and John the Baptist said and the author of this book clearly said that Jesus came to do God's work to take away the sin of the world. And here is his loud conquering cry, but he's dying here. And that doesn't look victorious. So a really good question at this point is, how is that finishing the work of saving sinners? He is dying. He died. How is Jesus dying a victory? I mean, are we really saying that? Is is Jesus really saying that? Is He delusional? Is the Bible saying that? Are Christians here saying that? That Jesus, when He dies, that that's how He saves His people? That that is His victory? And it's true. It's true. The victory of Jesus came through His suffering and His death. Listen to the same author, John, elsewhere. In another letter he wrote, 1 John 1, seven. There he said that the blood of Jesus... He's looking back on the cross now. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all our sin. The same author says in 1 John 3.16 that Jesus had laid down his life for us. So he's dying, I'm learning. But his dying is for us. He's bleeding out, but his bleeding somehow cleanses me. And then listen, in 1 John 2, 2, John said about Jesus, he Is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only. But also for the sins of the whole world. And that is a word we don't use anymore. There is no place for it. Unfortunately. But the word propitiation. When John looks back and says That Jesus is the propitiation. The word propitiation means a wrath. Satisfying substitute. So a propitiation is this. Someone deserves wrath. Someone deserves punishment. Justice must be served. And we all know that in a good world. Justice must be served. The just God must be satisfied. So you have an, a disobedient soul that deserves judgment, deserves wrath. Bible refers to this as an object of wrath and a propitiation is a substitute, a replacement that steps in the place and bears the wrath instead of the beloved. And that's what Jesus is doing on the cross. John reflects back. He says in his letter Do you know what that was? You know what that was? That wasn't defeat, that was victory. His life wasn't being taken. His life was being given. That should be you. That should be me on that cross. That should be you. That should be me condemned. One of Isaac Watts songs says, and this is how God may see us through Christ now, him, that's Jesus, and then the sinner see, look through Jesus' wounds on me. A couple of things. If you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, in other words, you have not committed your life to Jesus in such a way that He is your Lord and He is your Savior. And he is your greatest treasure. Listen. These things that John has said, you must respond to them. This is not good news that you just listen to, this is good news that you believe. And when you believe this good news, it changes everything. But you have to believe this word. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. John 12.46 Jesus said, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in Me may not remain in darkness. 1 John 5:11 and 12 and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son whoever has the son has life Do you this morning have the son? That's the most important question in your life right now. Do you have the son? Why are you here this morning? What do you believe this morning? Why do you believe what you believe? Look at this cross. Look at yourself. Look at the cross again. Express. Sorrow for what you've done against God. Seek forgiveness from God. Seek mercy from God. Take hold of Christ as your Lord, as your Savior, as your treasure. With both hands of your heart and soul. And let go of anything else. And let go of everything else. Stop going your way and go Christ's way. Believe this gospel. Commit your ways to Him. John, listen. John, if you're here and you're not a believer, John wrote this book for you. He wrote this book for you. John chapter 20, verse 31. I have written these words so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. And this is the promise, John 1, 12 and 13. But to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. So if you are here this morning and as you hear this good news of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, and you have not yet believed this, believe it. And if you haven't turned from your own ways and turned to follow Jesus, turn this morning. And I know at least I'll stay after service up in the front, if you want or need someone to talk to, I'll wait for you. Now what about those of you who are Christians? It is finished. You should be comforted by this. You've got to be comforted by this. So much, if we'll admit it, of what we do... Even as Christians, is acting like our salvation isn't finished or accomplished. And we're trying to earn it. Or we're trying to deserve it. Or we're trying to work for it. Or we're trying to make ourselves more acceptable in God's sight. And we feel like He's holding out. And we got to keep doing this. And we got to keep doing that. And if we don't, He's not going to love us. And if we don't, He's not going to accept us. I mean... We've had people in our lives treat us like that. Is God any different? He's so different. People said they loved you, and they didn't love you. They said my love for you is unconditional, and it wasn't unconditional. And when you acted like this, they loved you. And when you were this way, you got their affection. And when you accomplish this, you got their praise. And if you didn't do that, and if you didn't act right, and if you didn't talk right, and if you didn't hold their reputation up in town, you didn't get love from them. And so you might assume, well, that's what people are like, and that's what God is like. That is not what God is like. I mean, his son died so that he doesn't hold now anything against you. You are forgiven of your sin. You are Christian, washed clean of your sin. And when you try and work that off, it's bringing your fig leaves. It's bringing your filthy rags. And he speaks to that and says, stop. I mean, God's word to you is, I want you to please me. I want you to obey me. I want you to do good works. Christians, do good works, but do them because I love you, not to get me to love you. And God's word says, that is so offensive when you do that, Christian. Like, I can love you any more than I do right now. That's God's word for you. You've heard me say this before. You could not, Christian, be more loved and accepted by God than you are this very moment. He's maxed out his love on you right now. And he will will hold that degree of love for you forever. Forever. And he loved you to that degree. Before you were born. It is finished. You can't add something. To something that's finished. <laughs> he couldn't be more plain. You also. Cannot take away. From something. That is finished. You also cannot claim something for yourself. That someone else finished. Unless they say you can. And that's exactly what we're told. That his death could count as my death. His suffering could count as my suffering. His punishment could count as my punishment. His righteousness could become my righteousness. And so that's true for you right now, Christian. S.W. Gandhi said right in a poem about Jesus, He hell in hell laid low, Made sin, he sin o'erthrew, Bowed to the grave, destroyed it so, And death by dying slew. So let me wrap this up with three quick and final observations. Some of you know this verse. In Matthew 12, 34, Jesus said that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. For Proverbs four twenty three says that the heart is the wellspring of life, or the heart is the fountain of life. So out of the abundance of your heart, that's where your your words come from. Which, by the way, when you say something to someone that you regret, you cannot truthfully say, I didn't mean to say that. That's how we try to cover it, right? You say something rude. You say, oh, I said, you wish you could pull it back in. And one of the silly things we say is, listen, I want you to know, I didn't mean to say that. Oh, yeah, you did. That's why you said it. You may be sorry that you said it. You may not mean it right now. But you meant it then. I got a verse. (laughs) Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So... Taking Matthew 12.43, of course, Christ meant every dying word he said on the cross. Think of it this way, these words, specifically these words that we looked at today were out of the abundance of the purest fountain in the universe. I'm just laying Matthew 12, 43 over these words of Jesus. It's true for him. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So these words, they're coming out of the purest fountain in the universe. So finally, here is where I want to conclude and draw your attention as we close. At the height of his suffering, what was in the heart of Christ? At the height of his suffering, what was in the heart of Christ? At the height of his suffering, what was on Christ's unclouded mind? And we know by reading those words we just read, because they came out of the abundance of his pure heart. So three sayings, three things. Three things that at the height of his suffering were in the heart of Christ. Number one, his mom. It's true. It's true, children. His mom was on his mind. His mom was in his heart. Number two, the word of God. I thirst. And he said, I thirst to fulfill Scripture. He's got Psalm 22 in his mind. He's got Psalm 69 in his mind. His mom's in his heart and in his mind. The Word of God is in his heart and in his mind. And then finally, the glory of God was in his heart. The glory of God was on his mind. You might be thinking, wait a minute. I thought it was the salvation of sinners. Isn't that? It is finished. The way of salvation is finished. And absolutely. If you're a believer or you become a believer, you were in his heart, you were in his mind. Absolutely. But there's something bigger than that. There's something bigger than that. And it is, it is in his heart and in his mind was the glory of God. And it was the glory of God that was primarily in his heart and in his mind when he said, it is finished. And here's why I think that. In John chapter 12, verse 27, when Jesus is beginning to feel the suffering that he's about to endure for the sin of the world, remember he said, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. He's going to save sinners for the glory of God. To make God's name great. To make the fame and the renown of God spread. So there we have it. At the height of his suffering, what was in the heart of Christ? At the height of his suffering, what was on Christ's unclouded mind? His mom, the word of God, and the glory of God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that your son beared witness to and the truth that I can preach and the truth that we can read and the truth that we can hear and understand and be changed by. God, thank you for your truth. God, we ask that you would take these words that we've read this morning and, 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 and take the truth that is in our mind and I hope heart now. And God, we pray that your word by your spirit would do a work in us so that we would love you more. So that we would honor you more and glorify you more. That we would still, for so many of us, that we would still keep letting go of the things of this world and taking hold of you. Help us, God, we pray. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.